Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. We're really happy to have you back and it's going to be a fun week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. How are you doing, Lindsay? Oh, I'm all right. Uh, I'm starting to feel like um, surprised at how much happens in every day, despite the fact that I'm unemployed uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, and uh, it's, so it's getting busy, which just feels like a funny thing um, after a long period. I'm sure we have some uh, listeners, you know, that, that are in similar situations where whether the pandemic or otherwise, you, you're less than fully employed. <laughs> yep, it's, sure. a, it's a funny thing, um, but I'm, you know, starting to feel a little bit more like every day is packed, which is good. How about you? How are you doing? Just good. Um, things are good. Uh, really, you know, it's a good week. Um, things are super busy, but feeling good. It's all, it's all fine. Um, you know, still a lot going on. Still really interesting to see how everyone is dealing with just the whole process of figuring out what the next phase of everything is going to be. You know, all the different, the universities trying to figure out what they're doing this fall, the schools, all of that. Just, it's, there's a lot, a lot of pieces and parts in the air and it all has to do with you know it all impacts the economy so dramatically so there's yeah. so much skin in the game um but it's it's interesting to see it and i'm i think this week i'm feeling less um frustrated and desperate about it than i am <laughs> sometimes so that's good um you know that's good. it is what it is and um we are an adaptive species <laughs> i feel like we are exercising that muscle a lot lately so yeah, no, I mean, it, I think it's true. It's actually funny that you mentioned education stuff. We were talking yesterday, my partner and I, a little bit about, you know, what's happening with education. And and, and it's a hard one because I will say we heard a guy on the news talking about how, like, you know, education has gotten more expensive. He was sort of specifically talking about higher education. Yeah. But um, that it's getting more expensive and yet it hasn't gotten any better in the past 30 years or something like that. And was sort of arguing that, that it like other industries needed to figure out how to cut costs and be more efficient and do these kinds of things that would enable it to get through the hard times. And I, I realized ultimately that what didn't sit well with me is that education doesn't feel, it's not a commodity. It's not a part of the industry yeah. in, the same, in, in a, an industry, right? Like education is a really fundamental thing about society seems to be a very gnarly realm of navigating through the pandemic um, yeah. for good reason. It's, it's not just a question of like food service or something like that. <laughs> like, this, right. is, this is like a real fundamental of like how humans become <laughs> what they are, you know, that we, we all have this, this right and this, you know, imperative to educate ourselves. In some Absolutely. Way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I know you've heard me talk about the K through 12 education side of that a little bit. And it, it continues to frustrate me that it's considered completely appropriate that we would bail out airlines. And don't get me wrong, I think 
that's a part of the economy too, um, but that we are not really talking about how we support public education through this, right? That's just not, there's not a big mobilization towards that. And I'm frankly sort of appalled by that. I mean, it's, it, I think it is, the, it is a huge piece of our economy and also of our social contract. And yeah. I don't see what, and, and so I, I really mean K through 12 and higher ed, the whole thing. I think that's, I think part of it is that we, we do tend to treat them as industries, you know, yep. we, keep, we, we think about them in similar ways to airlines. But frankly, if airlines didn't exist, humanity would still probably continue to function, whereas it would not if we didn't have some form of, of education. You know, it's just, you kind of have to think about it in, in these sort of theoretical terms. Like imagine your life if yep. you literally had never gone to school and no one else around you had gone to school. Like, what would that even be? <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. Well, I, yeah, totally yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah, we don't know the answers yet. And I, I'm not saying that I have one, but I do kind of feel like maybe the questions we're asking aren't always the questions that we should be asking because, you know, it is bigger than just this idea of like, you know, does our education system work right now or not? There are problems, but we are going to have to do something to make sure that everybody keeps learning some stuff, yep. uh, you know, if that's the phase of life that you're in. Anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll end my rant now, but it, it uh, so certainly, I think, I mean, you know, as people are going back to school, it does feel like a, a time, a point in time where this should be something we all think about to some extent, even if you don't, even if you're not currently being actively educated or have, you know, people yep. in your family who are. Yeah, it's a big deal. Well, I, you know, that actually might be a good way to introduce our guest for today, because in my most recent educational experiences at UC Berkeley, I had the delight to work with, informally to work with Judy Hearwagon, who is our guest for today. And Judy is a great educator and thoughtful person in every way. And we're very excited to have you. So welcome, Judy. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. Um, and let me just give a little background about what Judy does, although this will just be sort of touch the, it, it will not be comprehensive. But um, Judy is a psychologist whose work focuses on the behavioral and health impacts of building design and operations. She's currently a research psychologist with the US General Services Administration and is on the architecture faculty at the University of Washington, where she teaches courses on building performance and biophilic design, topics about which she has written and spoken extensively. And I'm sure many of our listeners have had, or I hope so, have had an opportunity to at one point or another hear Judy talk about these topics. So Judy, just to get started, I wondered if the, maybe we, the best way to kick this off is if you could just tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in psychology and buildings. What has been your path to that? Well, it didn't um, start directly. It's a very circuitous and serendipitous route. I think that is really important to understand and, and people should take advantage of serendipity a little bit more. My husband and I were um, in uh, Boston at the time and he had 
received a, a job offer from the University of Washington Architecture Department. Um, so we were heading for Seattle and it was just before we um, left that I read an article in the New York Times that had a huge influence on me. Um, it was about Ed Wilson's new book called Sociobiology. And in that book, um, he talked about the evolution of social behavior in animals um, and how it was really important to be able to understand how the animals came to be as they were, how they behaved um, in relationship to evolutionary pressures that looked at the relationship between the um, evolving species and their environment. What did the environment enable? What did it support? Um, and so that became very fascinating to me because I, I had spent no time in this field at all. I was um, basically a journalist and working for uh, Wellesley at the time in their um, public relations office. And this just flipped my interest. I, I don't know how to explain it otherwise, but I, the first thing I did was buy Ed Wilson's book and read it from front to back. And um, then I, there was a psychology professor at the University of Washington who was one of the people mentioned in the Times article. So I uh, went to see him as soon as we got to Seattle um, and he gave me some advice and he said, well, if you're really interested in this, uh, why don't you start in zoology? Um, and that's where you look at animals and the environment. Um, and he taught those areas, um, animal behavior in the psych department. So I spent the next two years um, in behavioral ecology, going around in various environments and field uh, places, looking at how animals behaved and how you can link that to the ecology of the place. Um, the physical environment, the behavioral environment, what other species were around, weather and climate patterns and all of that. And it, it was a real eye-opener to me because it was, um, it was just so global, um, so interconnected to see behavior linked to so many different aspects of the environment. So then I began to say, okay, what do I do with this? Where do I carry? How do I carry these ideas forward? Um, so I actually... Um, started in psychology in a PhD program with David Barish, um, who was the professor who put me onto uh, connections in the, at the university in this area. And I just sort of started following um, that. And I, at some point I was doing animal behavior there. I studied the macaque uh, monkeys and the Woodland Park Zoo where they were going through a huge transformation in the environment getting animals out of cages and into more natural habitats. And when I did this, I said, aha, isn't this the way we should be thinking about people? Getting them out of these you know, boxes that they work in and live in and looking at how we can begin to integrate the natural environment to those places, how we can begin to design differently to look at um, people as a species linked to the environment in very fundamental ways. And that was the start to my career. And then I you know, moved into um, the psychology of people in the built environment. Judy, I love that progression and that whole notion of, of how it moves into the human side of it and what it might mean for us to get out of our boxes and into a stronger connection with nature. Um, which makes me think that we, it might be um, interesting to, if you could define biophilia for our listeners. Biophilia was very much a part of what I was doing. 
this is at, at a time when the, um, the uh, oh, I transitioned from the psych department to the Department of Architecture. I don't know if I said that. I had a research faculty appointment in architecture, and that's where I began to sort of say, okay, let's mm -hmm. see if we can use this accumulated knowledge I have and look at how we design environments for people. And that led to a, um, an interview by the university um, news office in which I said we did a better job of designing uh, zoos for animals than buildings for people. <laughs> um, and that just exploded everywhere. I had reporters calling me from literally all over the world because they thought it was such an interesting idea and whether I, the monkeys would like the, uh, the cubicles better than people do. Um, there was, it was so, but it was, it, it just struck a chord, which was really, um, I think, interesting. And that sort of started me saying, okay, how do we look at people from this ecological perspective? How do we look at the environments? How do we integrate behavior? Um, how do we change behavior? And fundamentally, what do people need? And that's where the connection to biophilia came in. People evolved in a natural world. Our species um, lived on the African savannas for hundreds of thousands of years before we began to build buildings. So a lot of that nature is just part of our human nature. And you, when people have a choice, they really like to be outside. They like to be in gardens. They, and right now, the garden industry is going fabulously <laughs> uh, because people are working in their gardens now. And, you know, they're, they're uh, the best year they've ever had in, in many of the big nurseries around Seattle. And I think that that connection is so intuitive um, that it just struck me as bizarre that it was not part of our the way we design and build um, and live in envir indoor environments. And I think that it took a while for this um, whole idea of biophilic design uh, to take off, but it is about how do you incorporate nature into um, built environments. And it can be in many different forms out in the you know, natural world, it's real living things, but you can't always have those indoors. So I think the whole field has just become very innovative about how you can think about biophilia in many different ways. Um, you can take lighting, and, and um, I was doing some work with one of the lighting manufacturers recently on biophilic light. What does that mean? You know, it means you, know, you can use color, you can, the way we do lighting now means you can do it in so many different ways. You can change the color over time. You can uh, put patterns on the wall using um, imagery that is projected so that the, the palette is very rich and it just takes sort of creativity to sort of figure out what works in what particular environment. But so that my pathway has been rather indirect and always finding connections, you know, mm -hmm. how to solve this problem, how to think about it differently. I'm not a designer, so I can't do this stuff. Um, I wouldn't know how to, you know, do it well, but I think I can speak to designers in terms of what is possible and what they might do to integrate biophilic design and biophilia into the built environment. Wow, Judy, there are so many things I want to comment on there. I can barely choose, but I do think that this notion of us as part of nature, at least for me, that was a big aha moment in terms of my, like finding my way into this movement as it were. Um, it was a grad school thing and it was my a professor of mine at Parsons, Gene Gardner, who talked about humans as part of nature, not separate from it. And it was one of the first times I was introduced to that idea and it was transformative. It just changed the entire way I looked at 
the environment and the way I looked at the human role in it and everything else. And I think that's really powerful. I also love the notion of biophilia as being this rich palette for designers. And I think that's one of the things that draws so many people to it. As soon as they learn about it, they feel like it's this, it's practically unlimited what you can do in that realm. But you also mentioned finding connections. And that brings me to my next question, which is um, one of the things that makes your work, your research and your your books and your talks so compelling, I think, is how you, your research seems to cross realms and it's rooted in a kind of expansive thinking that is not siloed to one sector or discipline. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that approach. Well, I think part of it may stem from my training in uh, journalism, where you're always looking for connections. And you know, so I, I think I've sort of had that, that way of thinking um, for a long time. And I, and I think the other part of me is I'm bored with sameness. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't go into psychology and do something, the same thing for 20 years, just going deeper and deeper and deeper into less and less. And I think that the essence of being human is to find connections I and mean, we are natural connectors. Um, and I think that that is, you know, that, that's just something that we can do easily, that some people do it better than others. And there is a place for going deep into knowledge, but I think biophilia, is a connecting concept. It connects us to the, the natural world, it connects us to people. And I think it's seeing that broader aspect and in, in finding something new to explore. You know, what does this knowledge over here tell me about how to do that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I know about you know animals? How do I know about people in the relationship to culture? Because culture is extremely important in how you even apply thinking about biophilia. Um, so you have to understand people's um, ways of living and, and what they care about. Um, so I think that it's always just led me down that pathway to look at things slightly differently. In doing that, try to make sense of all of them in a, a way um, where you can convey it to other people, the, the sense of expansiveness, but not having it be so broad that you don't know what to do about it. Um, finding examples of those connections. And I, I really think my, my background in zoology really helped to do that because ecology really is about connections between species, between species and the environment um, and climate. So, it, and I think that ecology base is probably what really influenced my thinking in this area. I love that, Judy. It's it's such a cool thing. We we we've had other folks on the podcast talk about systems thinking, and how they learned about it. And it seems to me that learning ecology and getting into just the ways in which people think in that realm. You mentioned Ed Wilson. I believe that's the the same thing as other people understanding E. O. Wilson, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like these these thinkers and these ways of approaching the world, it, it seems like such a great foundation for taking a systems thinking approach to everything that you do. But also, yeah, as you mentioned, it's just, um, it's just always refreshing to hear you talk about the re interaction between humans and the built environment, because it doesn't make it sound as binary, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. which I, I think is important. But yeah, so, so, okay. So, You've done all of these things. I have a question that I'm super curious about. 
which is what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life thus far. And it can be anything, however abstract or concrete that comes to mind. Um, I think there are a couple of things and they're rather different. One of them is having people, particularly students, call me out of the blue um, and just ask if I can talk to them. And I, or meeting me at conferences and, and mostly the students, young people who really want to know more about this that I've been really happy to engage with. And, and I'm approachable, I guess, because they don't feel any fear of, of coming to ask me for help or to talk to me. And I think that's been a, a real pleasure in and, and teaching. And students are just, they're hungry for this. The, the biophilia class I teach are people, you know, kids from, students from different disciplines. They're, you know, architecture, landscape, one from, um, was an art student. So I think that is one of the big things. Um, but I think also it's just being able to have had the experience working across disciplines, um, particularly with the, the book, The Biophilia Hypothesis that Steve Kellard and uh, E.O. Wilson edited. Uh, we met in a small group, the authors, all came together in Woods Hole for a, a long weekend. There were like 12 of us, you know, with Ed Wilson. It was just phenomenal. And, and making the connections across those disciplines because they weren't all ecologists. There were a couple of artists, there were um, people who, you know, were skeptics. And it was a really, really um, interesting opportunity. So I think that kind of thing has been, I, I see as being really, been really valuable in and in many ways has really influenced uh, the way I work. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I was thinking when you said a minute ago that uh, a lot of students come up and want to talk to you, and I was thinking, what is it about Judy that makes her someone that students come up to? And I was sort of, you know, imagining this like hypothetical conference that we've all been to, and everybody's going up to different people. And I think one of the things about you that that might be that is that you you exude a certain curiosity and an, and sort of an analytical approach to figuring out our world and a lot of people you know you might go to a conference because you're sort of trying to get a job or you want to talk to somebody who has like some particular role in the world that you think you need to get access to or whatever uh, but students are oftentimes just trying to make sense of things, trying to kind of develop their own theories or trying to look into a question. And, and I, I think you're one of those people that very naturally feels like someone to talk to if you're kind of working through something, <laughs> if that makes sense. So uh, thank you for being that. I think that makes a ton of sense. That's a very good way to put it because I think even my presentations often raise more questions than answers. And you're looking at how you fit things together. It's a, it's a big puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, it takes a certain type of mind to point out what that puzzle is, you know. <laughs> and, it's true. Uh, and let other people answer, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm totally with you on some of this point about, like, I'm, I'm not really a designer. And I've always been around a lot of designers. And I find it enormously enriching to get to be the, to, to have more of a role with people where you're sort of identifying the constraints or identifying the opportunities and sort of saying, this is, you know, this is a symptom. Can we get to a treatment rather than mm -hmm. having to be the one that generates the actual creative ideas? But it, it does feel like uh, there's sort of a, it, it's less common uh, to be in a room where you're not the 
creative person in our world and it's it's amazing how well you do that because you're because i mean all the work that you do is very expressive and i mean even just thinking about you know raising the questions about being in a animal in a zoo and what that animal wants like it's just very evocative i guess is, is part of it um well, so uh, is there any project that you're working on right now that uh, you would like for our listeners to know about or anything that is exciting you these days that you want to get out in the open? I think what's exciting me is just seeing how many different ways people can handle this, you know, this wide open field of biophilic design. And I think you, it can be very subtle. It can be um, really engaging and it can be just about anywhere. So that's what I like doing. And I think that um, biophilia is just one component of a complexity in the environment. And I, I'm one of the things I'm working on right now with GSA is what is the future of work um, if so, be, mm -hmm. so many people can stay at home, but being at home is lonely. And so we, we're getting back into the, you know, the social components of biophilia, which, you know, there, there's a lot of work on the ecology of behavior that is kind of remotely connected to biophilia, but it's, it's a component of our ecology. And so if I, if I take back that ecology thing, you know, people need to be together. Um, we're a social species, and I think we're really struggling with what does that mean when you work at home and are on Zoom all the time? And what is it that is essential for people to be together for? Certainly friendship development um, is probably much more difficult unless you have existing friends to create friends online in any meaningful way. And I think that, so that is part of our biology also. Um, so, you know, from a biological perspective, I, you know, I think it, the thing that is looming really, really large now is um, social behavior and how you how you keep people together and engaged when they're at home all the time and what is it that they need how do you and if they are going to be home are there other ways to sort of do engagement and keep them uh, connected to one another and having friends at work this is part of biophilia expanded largely is the connections of people to both the natural world and the real world mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about biophilia during this pandemic time. I'm here in my home where I have a lot of plants and I look out on a beautiful body of water. I'm very fortunate here in Lake Merritt in Oakland. And I wonder about whether people, you know, homes don't, I mean, you know, I'm definitely not the average home here, but uh, it seems to me that you're more likely to have access to nature if you're at home than you are at work. I'm not sure what the numbers would actually tell us, but whether it's just because it's easier to kind of go outside and see some nature because you're not in the city or whatever it is. So I, I, I wonder whether we won't all have a higher value for access to nature coming out of this and sort of feeling like it's, you know, more resistance to going back to the cubicles. I think that's, um, Absolutely true. And you find um, in our neighborhood right now, you find more people than ever out walking and working in their yards. And I think that having that connection to nature and even um, in big cities, where do people go when they let loose? They go to the water, um, they go to the parks. And even though we're trying to discourage that for social distancing purposes, people want to be outdoors. 
And I think they're going to find ways to do it one way or another. And I think that lure is, you know, sort of the natural environment and, you know, and parks and water and all of those things that um, have been important to us connected to the social environment. And I think that we can't disconnect the social and the natural environments as we have been doing by asking people to stay home. You know, home from anything, not just work. Um, and I think that that has been a, a serious mental problem for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I am looking forward to the thoughts that you and people like you contribute to some of these questions over time. I think the complexity of what it is that we need in terms of social engagement, it's just one of those things. I feel like we're all this crazy natural experiment right now of trying to understand what this does to our mental well-being and all of the, you know, physical well-being, et cetera. And, you know, we're all kind of in a phase where it's hard to know what the answer is, but I'm, you know, whether it's issues of Zoom fatigue or other things, you know, it's not obvious how we, how we get through this and have healthy social lives. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, a little bit more time to the point where we have better ideas for, you know, how to, how to help people get through such a difficult time. And it's, I, I hope, you know, if you, if you're reading anything or finding anything that you think is particularly valuable in that realm, I think all of us would appreciate it. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that would be really interesting to know is whether people who do live in areas that have nature, whether it's gardens outside or, you know, nice views or whatever, whether it has a curing impact or a helpful impact on them rather than somebody who might be in a an apartment with views of other gray buildings and you know nothing living around them you know no people outside or anything i think i would think that would be a real mental disadvantage at this point that people who actually have nature can even go outside in their backyard just probably are doing better you know, at least emotionally i i just can't imagine being in a place where there would be nothing you know no ability to go outdoors nothing to see from your windows except um, gray buildings, I, I would think that would be very not good for us, actually. And I think that, that that's the kind of thing that is not discussed enough in this um, pandemic. Yeah, I hope it will be sooner or later. I think you're right. It's um, In some ways, you could say that the pandemic is sort of exposing the ways in which the built environment choices that we've made or choices that have been made for us are impacting our health more than any of us really have thought about. We used to have more choices of where we physically could go and now we don't and, you know, changes everything. Oh, we're, we're prisoners, basically. Yeah. And I think that that is not good for our emotional or social health. Well, um, changing courses a little bit, but I have a feeling we'll keep talking about this kind of thing. I, I wanna ask you a little bit about the movement that we are a part of, um, more largely speaking, and you can define that however you want to, but I guess loosely I think of it as sort of the sustainable buildings movement. And I wanna ask you, do you feel like a part of a movement? Do you feel like a part of an industry? Can you distinguish between those two for yourself? And then I'll ask you a little bit more about how you think we're doing. But but just to start out with, what do you think about when you think about the idea of being a part of a, a movement or an industry? Well, I th think it's very important. And I think that 
the natural environment and biophilia was not a part of sustainability when it first started up. It really was about impacts on the physical environment, the ecological environment, and not the human environment. But I think that it has been um, integrated over time as a, you know, a central factor in this. You, you can not have a sustainable environment if you don't sustain people, you know, emotionally and socially and um, psychologically. And I think that that is becoming more and more evident in, uh, in concerns for um, resiliency, for the um, you know, movements to sort of be better interconnected and um, caring for nature in overall as part of being a sustainable environment and a sustainable um, country um, and climate. And, and I think that that has become even more ingrained in the, the biophilic cities movement and how you integrate buildings and, and built environments in ways that integrate into the natural environment rather than destroying it. How do you um, actually enhance the environment as part of your building uh, strategy? So I, I think there's, um, that's where it seems to be moving in, in behavioral ecology and the natural environment is a huge component of that, um, which is very exciting to see. Yeah, I, it's, it's true. Even just in the past year, I feel like I've noticed more people recognizing that this is not just a fight to reduce carbon emissions, that it is about improving the quality of life, especially for those that have been so negatively impacted by uh, climate change and fossil fuels and urbanization in ways that, you know, have detached us from healthy environments. So I totally agree. I want to ask a little bit more about where you think we have made good progress and where you think we haven't. Um, where are the areas that you want to see the movement focusing more than it has or giving it giving more attention than it has? That's an interesting question. And I, th I think that, you know, pushing harder into things like regenerative design and, you know, really low impacts on, on the environment and not just low impacts, but improving the environment as part of design. And I, I think there is um, that push. I think that it's not there yet. And I don't think we have large enough buy-in. I think, unfortunately, it can still be seen as a, a fringe a fringe interest in the building industry. Mm -hmm. um, you look at all of the office buildings that have been built around the world or, or apartment buildings in Seattle, um, it's dreadful. There's no, you know, they just knock any trees down to put up apartment buildings as close to the sidewalk as possible. And it's all about stuffing people into buildings. And I think that that's going to be hard to change. If, in fact, you know, it's part of the real estate development, you know, the, the economics of all of it. You know, you make money by having more people in your buildings, um, not by having green space around your buildings. And I think that's going to be, that's a legislative issue. And I think that that's going to be a challenge. And I, I think the more we have concrete and the fewer trees and, and vegetation and other things we have, the worse it's going to be for the climate. And I think we're just going to have to rethink how we do buildings. And, and certainly this pandemic has shown that, you know, there may be a lot of empty buildings or half empty buildings for quite a long time, um, which is showing that, you know, maybe we've overbuilt, at least in Seattle. I, that's certainly the case. But I, but I think that 
there has to be a reckoning here and a coming together of, of people from the various industries in the building um, arena and the, the natural environment arena and the parks arena. They're all very distinct from one another now and you can't build an ecology of place with a bunch of sole proprietors who don't talk to one another. I love that. I start, mm -hmm. I'm feeling like that's happening a little bit more here in Oakland and it just gets me excited every time people start talking across these boundaries and, and as you said, start releasing a little bit of that sense that the way to make money is to pack as many people into buildings as possible. Um, one last question about that. I think you mentioned when we talked the other day about inner cities being left behind and I just wanted to see if you would talk a little bit about your thoughts there in terms of how progress has has in fact taken place in some facets of of the work that we do but not so much for inner cities yes i think that it's both a social and ecological issue and i i think that's a hard it shouldn't be a hard problem to solve it just really shouldn't be but getting you know it, it's such a big problem um, but maybe you start small. Buildings that are taken down or removed can be replaced by green space. Um, it can, you, you can plant trees, you can plant flower boxes. There's a lot of things that are not high cost um, that you can do in inner cities to actually, and that may just seem like a you know, greenwash, but nonetheless, it's a start being able to connect people to everyday nature, you know, being able to sit outside in a, a place that has trees and flowers around. I, I just, I don't know how you do that with just starting small and, and building. And whenever there's a new building permit or, you know, when you're removing something and re, um, rebuilding, this should just be part of what you do. We talk about habitats for people and it's not just putting them, stuffing them into buildings. It's the, the space around them and being able to socialize outdoors. I think it's a huge problem and it needs a movement. Green buildings was a movement. And you know, it takes a while for those things to start, but once they get roots in, they can grow better. They just need advocacy, they need opportunities, they need partners. But the green building started that way. Mm -hmm. I remember the USGBC first green build wasn't even called green build. There were 90 people there and they all stood up and introduced <laughs> themselves. Believe that or not, you know, and, you know, some of these things have been, you know, 20, 30,000 people. So it starts, starts with a small, dedicated bunch who just stick with it. Judy, that's a perfect segue to our last question. We really wanted to ask you who you are inspired by these days, and it could be in any realm. I know, especially for you, I wouldn't want to limit you to a certain realm. Oh, my. That's a, um, sometimes I'm, I, I'm inspired by people who take a chance, you know, I might read something in the newspaper, these are not people I know, but they'll do something different, you know, they'll start a little park themselves, you know, plan mm -hmm. things. And, and I think those are the people who inspire me are those who aren't the big name folks who have lots of followers on Twitter, other things. But it's the people who take the small steps, who say this is important enough that I'm going to invest in it. It might be cleaning a local park. It might be, um, and there's a perfect example in New York City where one of the neighborhood parks had been taken over by uh, drug addicts. And then people around there used to love going to the park and they just took it upon themselves 
to um, do weeding, plant new things, you know, make it clear that they were taking the park back. And I think it's those kinds of things that I really admire is people doing it out of a, a sense of goodness for the, the community, not mm-hmm. just themselves, but it's, it, and I think that's uh, what I admire more than big gestures. That's a wonderful, wonderful place to end, I think, today. Um, the citizen efforts, I, I love that. Thank you for calling that out. Yeah, thank you, Judy. And thanks for being with us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Well, it's, uh, it's been an interesting and wonderful conversation for me, too, and to uh, see you, uh, to not see you, to hear your voices virtually has been great. So it's been a, a, a great conversation for me, too. I'm so glad. That's that's definitely part of part of the purpose for us. It's it's always just nice to have good conversations. Um, so yeah, with that, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. <laughs>